0: I next met with Dr. Terry Mamonos, and to begin, he presented a patient with a strong family history of breast cancer who presented with invasive lobular carcinoma.
1: This 52-year-old female with family history of breast cancer, who presented maybe six months ago at our center, she had a 2.5-centimeter invasive lobular carcinoma and had three negative nodes on intraoperative assessment. But then on permanent assessment, she was found to have two out of three sentinels having some disease. One had micrometastasis, 0.8 millimeter, and one had macro metastasis at two and a half centimeters. And what was her BRCA situation? The BRCA situation was negative, but she did have significant
0: family history, mother, I think, and sister with breast cancer. How often do you see this where the intraoperative assessment is negative, the postoperative assessment is positive in terms of the nodes?
1: Lately, not very commonly, but certainly it occurs. Most of the studies suggest a sensitivity of about 85% on intraoperative assessment. So you may still have about a 15% chance that you're going to miss something deeper in the nodes. And typically, it would be a very small metastasis. Obviously, you catch the big ones by doing intraoperative assessment. But that brings the point, though, for this case, what to do after... And this was an ER ER-positive lobular carcinoma, ERPR-positive, HER2-negative. So, you know... Because based on the ACOSOC trial, if the patient had a lumpectomy, then axial dissection would not have been necessary, but with mastectomy, we don't have any data from the ACOSOC trial. On the other hand, we did hear the AMAROS trial at the ASCO meeting thing last year, where axillary radiotherapy was compared to completion axillary dissection. And what struck me about that trial was that, first of all, the local recurrence rates were very low for both groups, and there was no significant difference. Although because they were so low, the study was somewhat underpowered to detect significant differences, but they were like 0.5% versus like 1%. But second, what became apparent was that the morbidity from completion axial dissection in terms of lymphedema was higher than the morbidity from radiotherapy. So based on that, when I'm faced with a patient like this, if you make the decision to use radiotherapy, I think it's safe to omit completion axillary dissection. Now you can also look at this in another way. You can say if I did the axillary dissection, there were no other nodes. Maybe I would spare the patient radiotherapy, you know, because it has very low volume disease in the nodes. But certainly that may increase the morbidity. So axillary dissection has more lymphedema than radiotherapy. So we chose to treat the patient with comprehensive radiotherapy, including the axilla, because of the situation that we are in. So that's a debatable issue, but certainly in the amorous trial, about 17% of the patients had mastectomy, so they were included, and they were,
0: again, treated with either radiotherapy or completion axillary dissection. I'm kind of curious, this lady had a 2.5-sonometer invasive lobular cancer Obviously, node positive, but you know, kind of minimal node positive, two sentinel nodes, at least at this point. What was the thinking about adjuvant systemic therapy? This was ER positive, HER2 negative?
1: Yeah, ERP positive, HER2 negative. So the thinking in that patient, we discussed with her possible participation in the RxPonder trial, and I believe that she was interested in the trial, and she was even enrolled in the trial, and that brings actually a good point. For patients with such a low-volume disease, you know what is the value of an Oncotype DX to tell you if the patient is more chemotherapy-sensitive or monotherapy-sensitive and potentially enroll in that trial where patients under 25 recurrence score get randomized to chemotherapy,
0: endocrine versus endocrine therapy alone. As long as you brought that up, can you just maybe elaborate a little bit more on the eligibility for the study and how it's sort of interfaced with the node-negative study, the Taylor X study, and kind of what these studies are looking at and what we're hoping to see in the future. So
1: both the studies, the Taylor X and the Respondent Trial, essentially are trials that are trying to show whether there is benefit from the addition of chemotherapy to endocrine therapy for patients that have a intermediate in the Taylor X and low to intermediate recurrence score. So the Taylor X took patients with non-negative disease, whereas, you know, previous data from the NSABP B20 trial had shown that the majority of the benefit from adding chemotherapy to tamoxifen in non-negative ER-positive patients came from the high recurrence score group. Low recurrence score group did not have much benefit at all. And the intermediate group did not seem to have benefit. However, the numbers were low, and we didn't have the power to detect a small difference. So the Taylor X was designed for that particular population. The cutoffs, as you know, were a little bit different. Instead of 18 and 30 for intermediate, we dropped it down to 11 and 25 with the idea of being more safe and not denying patients chemotherapy with a recurrent score of 26 or 27, which is almost high. So based on the data from the non-negative patients, a same analysis was done in a not-positive trial, 8814, from the SWOG group that showed essentially the same thing. This was a trial, again, comparing FAC plus tamoxifen versus tamoxifen alone given either sequentially or concurrently. And going back and looking at blocks from that trial, they were able to find, first of all, that the recurrence score was prognostic, and more importantly, benefit from chemotherapy did not seem to be evident for patients that had low recurrence score. So the responded trial is a prospective validation of this concept, i.e., can we eliminate the use of chemotherapy for low-burden positive node patients if they have a low recurrence score? And the eligibility is for patients with one to three positive nodes that undergo recurrent score testing and are found to have recurrent score of up to 25, so 25 or less. So patients are randomized to endocrine therapy alone or endocrine therapy plus chemotherapy of choice per investigator's discretion. And that trial is accruing very well and I think will be completed not in the far too distant future. And I think will give us an important answer whether we can transpose the predictive value of the recurrence score, if you like, in node positive patients.
0: How are you approaching patients with limited nodal involvement who don't want to go on the trial? They're not eligible for the R-expander trial. Are you using Oncotype in node-positive disease? We discuss it. And
1: certainly, if they're somewhat reluctant to consider chemotherapy, we evaluate the recurrence score. And if they test low and low may not necessarily be you know between 18 to 25 but really low in the range of you know 10, 12, 15 percent up to about 15 percent we have a discussion with the patient and potentially we would not treat them with chemotherapy if they understand the issues involved We still say you know the standard of care is to get chemotherapy based on previous studies however based on the non-negative studies we believe that the benefit of chemotherapy would be negligible may not justify the toxicity and risk from chemotherapy.
0: Now, this lady had invasive lobular cancer. I'm curious how your approach differs, your thinking differs, both in terms of local therapy for lobular, as well as systemic therapy, if any. Yeah, there is, in
1: my mind, a whole different thinking how we handle lobulars. Lobulars, as you know, present insidiously. They can involve a lot of the breast tissue without a lot of radiologic findings. So typically, we don't diagnose them that early. We know from neoadjuvant studies that pathologic response to neoadjuvant chemotherapy with lobulars is very poor. In fact, maybe 1% to 3% at best. And now we know biologically why that is. For example, most of the lobulars test low on the recurrence score scale. I've also heard that lobular is rarely HER2 positive. Rarely HER2 positive, unless it's like a pleomorphic high-grade lobular. But the typical lobulars are ERP positive HER2 negative and usually have a low oncotype score. And so, based on that and the fact that they don't have PCR, large numbers of pathologic response to neoadjuvant chemotherapy, I tend to treat lobulars with surgery first, even if they are mastectomy candidates. I do not propose to them chemotherapy for downstaging because if you're not going to get a pathologic complete response, you still have to resect the entire area where lobular was because they will still be there. And also, it's very hard to downstage lymph nodes from positive to negative with lobular. So unless it's a pleomorphic lobular or hurt to her2-positive lobular, I treat them with surgery first. And I do mastectomy if mastectomy is indicated, or obviously a wide lumpectomy if that's appropriate. Also, I feel like, and that's a whole different subject, that I think the lobulars and the luminal patients, which are lobulars as well... Maybe a little bit more sensitive to radiotherapy, so I'd be more inclined to offer radiotherapy to these patients, like a postmastectomy radiotherapy if they have even a couple of
0: positive nodes. And I've heard people say that, as you mentioned, you know, lobular usually is low on Oncotype, and sometimes I've heard people question whether to even to send it. Do you see high results for lobular?
1: I've seen results that are in the high end of the intermediate group. Yeah, not necessarily all of them test low. And I think there has been a paper, I think published from Genomic Health that looked at a very large number of lobulars. And if I'm not mistaken, maybe 65 to 70% or so were low Reconic score. That means that 35% or so were intermediate or high. So it can happen. That's why we still send it. We don't just, just because it's face value, you know. And every so often we we'll diagnose lobulars with small tumors as well, sometimes mammographically detected. And those behave very well. That's the other thing about lobulus. And that's true in their clinical behavior before the days of Recarner score. We knew from randomized trials that lobulars don't do any worse stage for stage than doctors. In fact, they may do a little bit better.
0: You know, you mentioned the issue of archetype score and lobulars, and I kind of you know always been curious why genomic assays like Oncotype have not been pursued more in the neoadjuvant setting. I think there was one I remember that looked at Oncotype, Luca Gianni looked at it, but it doesn't seem like people are that interested in it, and yet it seems like you'd want to know it. I mean, do you really want to give neoadjuvant chemotherapy if they have a low recurrence score? But it kind of doesn't seem like it took off.
1: Now you make a good point, and I've raised that point many times where we can use sometimes the recurrence score for patients who present with sizable tumors, potentially borderline lumpectomy candidates, to potentially downstage them. You want to downstage them, but you also worry that maybe you'll be downstaging with chemotherapy when if you did the recurrence score and they were like 12, you may not be giving them chemotherapy for a three centimeter tumor, not negative potentially. You might be giving them endocrine therapy. Right, so the other question that has come up is, can you downstate some of these patients with neoadjuvant endocrine therapy? And Harry Bear, actually at Virginia Commonwealth University has a small pilot trial where essentially mirrors the taylor extra trial only in the neoadjuvant setting. So it takes patients that are mastectomy candidates based on tumor size with ER positive, HER2 negative breast cancers, and does the oncotype DX, or the recurrent score, and if it is less than 11, uses neoadjuvant endocrine therapy to downstage them. If there's over 25, uses neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and if they're 11 to 25, it randomizes them to either neoadjuvant endocrine therapy or neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So that's a nice trial, because it will tell us sort of what is the best way to downstage, and we'll look at PCR, and so forth. Now, of course, depending on the Taylor X data, that becomes a moot point, because if Taylor X shows that chemotherapy is of benefit, then you may choose to use neoadjuvant chemotherapy anyways. But if it doesn't, then obviously you can't randomize. But that trial will be done before Taylor X will report. So that's a nice strategy. But the devil sort of is in the details. Somebody, you have a patient in front of you that needs to make a decision whether surgery, neoadjuvant chemotherapy, neoadjuvant endocrine therapy... And doing the recurrence score from the core biopsy material, I mean, it's doable, but it takes seven to 10 days. And so it's a little bit of a delay in our process of treating the patient. But we've used that strategy, actually, in real patients
0: as of recent as well. So I knew you were going to give me a case that had something to do with margins. And here's this 50-year-old lady. What was the situation there? Yeah, this
1: is the old sort of debate, right? So this is a 50-year-old who had a lumpectomy, no biopsy. 1.6 cm invasive ductal carcinoma plus some DCIS. And the final pathology report states that DCIS comes within a millimeter from the superior margin and more than three millimeters from all the other margins. And I brought this case in, which happens almost daily in our practice, to just highlight the, maybe a little bit of a shift now in terms of how we approach margins. Because as you know, we've come sort of full circle. You know, the initial NSABP gestalt was no on tumor and we've managed through many years on that and then there were particularly for dcis you know mel silverstein and others have brought the issue that why there is better and recently as you know there was a guideline that was issued jointly by sso and the astro and other organizations that was published in jco and annals of surgical oncology that essentially went through like a meta-analysis of studies that actually measured the margin and what essentially this analysis showed was that wider margins don't necessarily result in better local control, or at least significantly better local control. On the other hand, negative margins do increase local control compared to positive margins. But when it comes to the width of negative margins, less than 1 millimeter or millimeter may be as good as 2 or 5 millimeters. And the thinking nowadays is that we rely on radiotherapy for those patients, and we don't necessarily take them back unless a lot of the margins are very, very close. You know, if I had somebody with three or four margins less than one millimeter, I may think of it differently. But somebody with like a focal close margin or even a focal positive margin occasionally, we just treat them with radiotherapy, particularly if they have
0: like a reasonably good phenotype. Yeah, I've read that paper a few times, like a lot of these formal papers, it's not that easy for a simple person to understand, but it kind of, I came away thinking, well, this is the no ink on tumor thing, period.
1: Yeah, I think that was the conclusion. Now, there are some caveats even that analysis, if you actually look at it very carefully, it does show a little bit of a trend. So maybe the truth is somewhere in between. And obviously, we all strive for wider margins if possible, but I think we should be ready to say that. If somebody has a very close or just focally positive, it's probably not worth re-excising, particularly in the era of having MRIs and good mammography where we know there's not a lot of disease behind. It's a different situation
0: now than it used to be before. So you brought in these other two fascinating cases. First of all, 13-year-old African-American girl. Yeah, this is really fascinating because
1: I've never seen one of those before to that extent. So she actually presented with a complaint of enlarging right breast and when you looked at her she was just 13 she started menstruating about a year ago and so within a year the right breast had become almost like eight times the size of the left breast it was huge pendulous breast and we did an mri and showed the large somewhat encapsulated mass but on exam actually it was a very soft you know feeling mass it wasn't like a hard like fibrinoma. So you couldn't tell on exam where the mass started or ended and where the normal tissue began. But on the MRI, there was a little rim of separation. And we did an ultrasound guided biopsy and it came back as PASH, this pseudoangiomatous stromal hyperplasia, which is an entity that we typically find incidentally or in a small lesion. And this was essentially, and probably is the largest case in the world. We looked at the literature and the last one reports from Greece of about, I don't know, 18, 19 centimeters. And when we ended up doing a, essentially, it was almost like a mastectomy, but it wasn't a mastectomy. It was a inferior lateral inframammary fold incision. We were able to get into the, separate the mass from the subcutaneous tissue and eventually remove it. And then the plastic surgeon came and did essentially put an expander to do a reverse sort of reconstruction, meaning to deflate the expander, let the skin come back to normal and eventually took some of the skin out because it was very pendulous. So, very interesting case, and eventually came back as PASH again on the final pathology, which is a benign entity. It doesn't necessarily increase much risk for breast cancer. So, I think this girl is going to do fine, but it was a very fascinating sort of presentation, and we actually like to report that. It's a nice case. What's sort of the biology of PASH? I don't think anybody knows for sure. It's probably some sort of a hormonally driven lesion, because I mean this was so coincidental with her starting menstruating. But nobody knows for sure what it is and what's developed. But it's essentially benign and doesn't have much of local recurrence, you know, risk. So, How about your 23-year-old lady. Yeah, this one was referred to me by. Somebody from Florida, another breast surgeon, who saw this patient who, again, had a small fibrinoma present for years, and then she recently got pregnant, and then all of a sudden this mass started to grow, and eventually became like an 18 centimeter mass in the breast, where biopsy showed phylloidus tumor. And the patient delivered and then came for evaluation and treatment. And it's interesting because she did want to preserve her breast, and that was obviously somewhat challenging because the whole breast essentially was the mass. But we did an excision of this through a sort of periareolar incision with lateral extension and managed to remove it with obviously fairly compromised margins in that case because it's almost impossible to not. So this patient is now on follow-up, and she did not want to consider any other form of treatment. and did not want to have a mastectomy. She's 23. And it was a benign phylloidus, but still has a local recurrence sort of risk and component to that. So carefully following this patient to make sure she doesn't have a recurrence. But again, it was technically challenging trying to take this big mass, which was a hard big mass,
0: away from the breast. So I want to ask you about some of the research reports you've been involved with. I want to begin with a poster you were part of at ASCO from the NSABP. Looking at the 21-gene recurrence score and quantitative ER expression to predict late distant recurrence of ER ER-positive breast cancer, can you talk about what you reported there?
1: Well, essentially, what we report is that the recurrence score is prognostic after five years, but for patients that have high ER expression. So there's a lot of interest now in this late recurrence. You know, how do you predict what happens after five years? And bottom line is the Reckano score is very prognostic, obviously, in the first five years. We know it's prognostic at 10 years. But a lot of the prognosis in the first five years is based on proliferation, you know, those kind of genes. And then the ER as well. But the ER is also a gene that looks at benefit from endocrine therapy. So what it turns out, and this was developed in, again in the B14, validated in B28, which is another study that we did the Reckano score, turns out that the high ER positive patients are the ones who actually the score is still predictive after five years of Tamoxifen for the year 5 to year 10. So high score patients have higher risk than intermediate or low score patients in this subset of high ER expressors.
0: But when you talk about high ER expression, I think about low oncotype. Is that what this is? Not necessarily. Obviously, it correlates, but not necessarily. But the high
1: ER expressions are based on the oncotype assay, you know, the ER by mRNA. So they took the patients that had ER more than 9.1%, with 9.1, which is a score in the Reconna score assay. And those that have high ER expression were the ones that actually the Reconna score, the one that was used at baseline, was predictive of outcome later on.
0: So do you see any practical implications for this study? Are you going to use it in your practice to consider as part of the decision for whether you should extend therapy, endocrine therapy, after five years?
1: Well, I think you could consider it. It's not the only study. As we know, there are other reports with other genomic classifiers as well. I think the practicality of such studies is that if you have a patient who doesn't tolerate where well the endocrine therapy and you struggle whether you should extend it for another five years or add an AI after tamoxifen for five years, you may want to select them. And again, it's not only a biologic classifier. We know, for example, nodal positivity is a factor that predicts risk for subsequent recurrence after five years versus not negativity We've shown that in previous trials. So you have to use, again, the clinical pathologic data as well as a genomic classifier to help you decide, is your patient at higher risk for subsequent recurrence or can you stop endocrine therapy after five years? And that's the main question that these data are trying to address.
0: Another paper that looked interesting at ASCO looked at HER2 testing in the DCIS-NSABP study, B43, that you all are doing looking at trastuzumab. What did you report here in this poster, and what's going on with that study?
1: Yeah, so B43 was a trial that evolved when, you know, the trastuzumab benefit was seen in the adjuvant setting, and some preclinical data suggesting that potentially may be a synergism between HER2 expression and radiosensitization. So the trial is structured to deliver two doses of trastuzumab during radiotherapy for patients who have DCIS HER2 positive by a central assay that we perform since it's not the standard of care and they receive lumpectomy and their candidates for breast radiotherapy. So patients are randomized to radiation alone or radiation in two doses of trastuzumab three weeks apart during radiation, the first week and the fourth week of radiation, and then monitored for invasive breast cancer recurrence, DCIS recurrence, which is the primary endpoint. And this study is accruing pretty well, and it's coming to a conclusion. I think we have another maybe six to eight months of accrual, and then we'll be completed. So we're very excited about that trial as well.
0: And what is the incidence of HER2 positivity in DCIS? Yeah,
1: that's an interesting question because what we found from that trial was that the incidence is a little lower than we originally thought it would be. There have been some anecdotal or retrospective studies that put the incidence up to like 50%, but we did not see that. We see about a 30 some percent incidence of HER2 positive breast cancer, even lower than that. And it depends also on how you select patients. If you look at high grade tumors, ER yeah, negative tumors, the incidence of HER2 positivity is higher, but low grade and ER positivity predict for lower incidence of HER2 positivity.
0: So the last thing I want to ask you about is the CALORE study that you and the NSABP were part of, looking at the issue of so-called pseudo-adjuvant chemotherapy after a surgical excision of a local recurrence. Kathy Miller's on the same audio program as you, and she said this data has changed her practice. What's your view of it?
1: As you know, back in one of the earlier papers I worked on with Bernie Fisher was a paper that was published at Lancet in 1993, looking at the biologic significance of ipsilateral breast tumor recurrence based on the BO6 trial. And what we found at the time was that the IBTR was a significant predictor of distant recurrence. And not necessarily an instigator of distant recurrence, but an indicator of risk for subsequent recurrence. And so if you look at it that way, you then say, well, IBDR is a herald of things to come. So maximizing systemic therapy at the time kind of makes sense because it's something that predisposes patients to systemic events. So that was essentially sort of the rationale for the calor trial. And as you know, many have tried in the past to do a randomized trial of chemotherapy or not in this setting and had failed and in fact we almost did as well it was a very hard trial to accrue and we sort of doing a lot of statistical manipulations would lower the sample size knowing that these patients had very high risk so we're able to eventually get the result and there was less than i think 200 patients trial although initially I think it was tracks was a 900 patient trial very difficult to do And the results were positive. Now, I mean, again, with a small sample size, you always can question whether it was by chance alone or not. But I think the differences are large enough, and particularly for the ER ER-negative patients, that potentially are the true finding. So I have adopted this in my practice, and I talk to my patients, particularly with estrogen receptor negative IBTR, about chemotherapy. Now, there are two issues here. One is that the timing of IBTR is important because... The earlier the I B T R happens, the more likely it is to be a true recurrence. And the later it happens, it may be a second primary. So the question is, you know, obviously you want to treat the second primary with chemotherapy, potentially, if that is in the guidelines, right? I mean, a triple negative patient, in other words, somebody that got another triple negative tumor in the breast, it may be a recurrence, but it may be a new cancer. And there, you know, chemotherapy has a significant effect. So you can look at it also that way. That you potentially may be treating new
0: primary tumors that need chemotherapy. So then, I mean, obviously there are clues you can get histopathologically, at location, et cetera. Right. So are you saying maybe the more clues you have that it's a second primary, the more likely you're going to be thinking about adjuvant chemo?
1: Yeah, if that patient is a candidate for chemo to begin with, and we even we talked about the whole issue of oncotype, for example, and that if it's like 15 years later in a different quadrant and it's a near PR positive her to negative tumor, I strongly would believe that it's a new primary. I probably get an oncotype, and if it's low, probably won't treat Right? But if you have a triple and a HER2-positive patient, then the longer the interval, the more likely to be a second primary. But based on this study, you don't even have to worry about this distinction when it comes to patients that need chemotherapy, you give it to them whether
0: they have a recurrence or a second primary. Again, I know interdisciplinary care is always desirable, but kind of seems like anybody with local recurrence for sure needs to see an oncologist.
1: Mm, No, I mean, I think it would be a good idea, but whether everybody will get chemotherapy.
0: Oh, yeah, no, whether they get it or not is another issue, but they maybe need to hear about it. Oh, Oh, absolutely, they have to see an oncologist. I agree. I mean, just like the typical adjuvant situation. Absolutely.